Welcome back to Sururbano. I want to start by giving a special shout out to our listeners in Peru, apparently one of the countries where this podcast is most listened to. Since an episode in Peru is so overdue, we actually have not just one, but a two-part series focusing on Peru and informality. The significance of Peruvian history on the topic of informality, however, is obviously not just restricted to this country. Some of the most emblematic experts on informality, from John Turner to Hernando de Soto, came out of a reflection on housing in cities like Lima and Arequipa before their ideas were exported to Latin America and around the world. Today, we talk with the researcher from University of Technology, Sydney, Helen Geiger, on her book, Improvised Cities, Architecture, Urbanization, and Innovation in Peru. As it turns out, when Helen interviewed John Turner on his experiences in Peru, he told her she had to look further back and at the Peruvian architects, politicians, and academics who were pioneers in addressing low-cost housing. In this episode, we do just that. Co-host Kelly Rosemary Jaime and I talk to Helen about three figures whose different approaches continue to define the terms of the debate around housing provision and informality today. Fernando Belaunde Terry, Pedro Beltran, and Adolfo Cordova. Helen, welcome. Thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. I also want to introduce Kelly Jaime Arias, our co-host. Kelly and I met at a Lincoln Institute conference in the elevator, and it was thanks to Kelly that I hit the peak of my podcasting career when she told me that she recognized me as the host of Sururbano by my voice. So, Kelly, thank you for that moment. I am really excited to be here. To begin, Helen, we always start with the same question, which is, and you can say this about Sydney or Lima, but where is your favorite place in that respective city to enjoy a cup of coffee or beer or beverage and just talk about cities? That would have to be anywhere near the harbour. So Sydney has a fantastic, beautiful harbour that it's like a, a huge tree form that extends in all sorts of bays from the heads in the Pacific all the way up to the Parramatta River. So there are a lot of fantastic ocean baths in Sydney. They're sort of cut into the sandstone cliffs. So you get the fresh salt water that comes in with the waves. And there are lots of those cafes like at Clavelli and Bondi and lots of other beaches that have cafes right on the beach near these ocean baths. So that's a fantastic, I think it's a fantastic, unique feature of Sydney is these sort of sandstone ocean baths and that's a, a beautiful place to, to spend some time chatting about cities. Helen, we are curious about what drove you to Peru. You mentioned that you had the chance to personally interview Adolfo Cordova who sadly passes away a year ago. He's one of the key figures of this history that you are about to share with us. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Okay, so this is kind of a long and circuitous story, so feel free to interrupt at any point. When I went started my PhD, I was interested in researching affordable housing. When I did my master's, I looked at Weimar-era Germany, the sort of collaboration between Martin Wagner and Bruno Tausch. And that was an interesting period because of the extreme economic stresses in Germany at that period. I was interested in looking at a post-war context when I was doing my PhD. And I thought I deliberately wanted to look beyond Europe and the United States. Initially, I was looking at 
Maxwell Fry and Jane Drew's work in India, and I went from that to looking at other Indian architects who were working on housing, like Balkrishna Doshi and Charles Correa. And of course, once I started looking at Charles Correa's work, I saw that he had worked on a project in Peru, this uh, Previ, Proyecto Experimental de Vienda. And I thought, why is an Indian architect working in Peru? So that was really the starting point. Helen, when people hear about social housing in Peru, they think about specific projects like Previ, Villa El Salvador, or, or maybe sometimes Manchai. But now we weren't talking about architecture projects and we are talking about, we are going to start talking about people instead. So why did you change the focus? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I guess you don't have architectural projects unless you have people who make them possible. So one of the things I was interested in was looking at um, this story sort of through different scales. So I wanted to look at the scale of individual architect practitioners and individual participants in projects to the extent that that's possible. But I also wanted to look at the policy sphere. So the people at the national level in Peru who were influencing housing policy. So people like Pedro Beltran, Manuel Prado, Fernando Melendri Terry, various other figures. And then I also wanted to look at the international sphere. So the development agencies, you know, yes, my background is in architectural history, but I didn't want to just look at the physical objects and do a formal analysis. I wanted to talk about really the conditions of possibility around those projects. And some of that is the input of individual figures. I think that because you had this privileged access to John Turner, who's a very recognized figure in the global north, it would have been easy, especially as someone from the academia in the global north writing about the global south, to start or to look at this story through the lens of John Turner. But instead, as you write, rather than guiding readers into unfamiliar terrain by charting the trajectory of a recognizable actor from the North Atlantic world, the figure of the, quote, global expert off radar, richly explored in a recent journal issue, it invites them to negotiate the territory from within. And so one of the reasons we also focused on your first chapter, but that I think was honoring your intentions, was John Turner is often not situated in an incredibly rich, pre-existing conversation from policy, economists, architects. And I really appreciated that you chose to, to frame your book that way. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Like I, I, I mentioned, I was interested in looking at different scales. And the original way the dissertation was structured was going from the architect to the national sphere to the international. And I realised in structuring it that way, I had John Turner as the entry point. Mm -hmm. And I just, it just felt wrong. And so that, that was, I was very consciously restructuring the book to say there are, there was a whole pre-existing landscape there before Turner arrived. Okay, so you touched upon this already on how you didn't structure your book, but I wanted to, just because it, it, it just has such an incredible scope and also, like, level of detail. I can't recommend this book enough, but um, I wanted to give the listeners a little bit of a glimpse, even though it requires making an impossible request of you, which is, can you provide a general overview 
of the book and how you did end up structuring it? It's funny, when I first started looking at this topic, particularly when I was speaking to contacts in Peru, people kept saying to me, there's no information, there's not much to write about. And I ended up with just such a massive amount of information. So it was, I tried a number of different ways of structuring the material. I guess the simplest overview is it's a chronological look at policies and projects to do with aided self-help housing in Peru from 1954 to 1986. So 1954 is significant because that's when one of the key figures, Pedro Beltran, starts promoting the idea of discussing affordable housing solutions through his newspaper, La Prensa. And at the end of 1954, there was a very large scale land invasion on the outskirts of Peru at a site called Ciudad de Dios, which ended up prompting a whole lot of changes in housing policy. So that's one, that's a start point. And at the other end, 1986 was somewhat basically that's when Ananda de Soto's El Otro Sendero, The Other Path, is published in Peru. And it's also the beginning of Alan Garcia's presidency when and the sort of emergence of Sendero Luminoso and other sort of insurgent forces, which and hyperinflation and so on, which means in a sense there's a, a natural end to efforts by the government to fund large-scale interventions into housing. So if you look at the table of contents in the book, some of the chapters overlap in terms of the time period, and that's because I'm looking at the material from different perspectives. So there are three sort of main spheres of intersecting worlds that I'm looking at in the book. One of them is the sort of policy and political landscape within Peru. The second one is architectural culture. So the interest of architects, modernist architects globally, in inverted commas, in issues around affordable housing. And the third sphere is the interventions of international development agencies, whether it's US-based agencies through the Alliance for Progress or the World Bank and the United Nations. Roughly speaking, the chapters move from one perspective to another, sometimes touching on the same material. And I guess also running through that, I try to talk about relevant architectural projects that emerge in relation to those particular contexts. Yeah, this is definitely very far from just a kind of focus on the brilliant, often male architect, like going forth into the world and creating these mm -hmm. decontextualized buildings. You reconstruct the entire ecology really wonderfully. When I was doing my master's, my supervisor often accused me of wanting to rewrite the encyclopedia. I think it's I think it's quite an apt criticism. I do have a habit of, I read some reference and I'm like, oh, actually, so for example, is the mechanics of how land invasions worked in Peru in 1960s relevant to the story? Maybe not if you're writing a conventional architectural history, but that's really relevant if you're constructing a fuller story. And then the, con the contribution of anthropologists who are studying mm -hmm. that. If you start to build the world in that way and you follow through the 
sort of connections that architects themselves were making in that period, then I think you do need to have that larger world. But it does present some challenges from a structural viewpoint. And I did at various points move material from one section to another in order just to clarify. And there's a lot of okay, I'm going to mention this in this chapter, but I'm not going to fully explore it later. So there's a lot of signaling that you need to do just from a writer's standpoint. So it makes, hopefully makes sense for the reader. Helen, we will be focusing on the beginning of this story, as told in chapter one, the challenge of the affordable housing, because we wanted to know what was happening in Peru in the 1940s and 50s, I don't know if you can give us the historical context of the housing becoming a question of governmental intervention, because you mentioned that Peru was a fertile site for innovation in, in low-cost housing under a succession of very different political regimes. Mm -hmm. no? So what can you tell us about this specific period in where our main characters are going to, they are going to intersect each other and they are going to know each other? Mm -hmm. So I talk a little bit at the beginning of that chapter about the, the very rapid changes that are happening in Lima. Between 1940 and 1954, the population of the city almost doubles from around half a million to a little over a million. And a lot of that, a lot of those people are accommodating themselves in barriadas, in squatter settlements. Partly that's because there was a significant earthquake in Lima in 1940, I think. So there are a lot of people who were starting to, having to accommodate themselves through self-building because of that. At the same time, other cities, particularly Arequipa, was also experiencing a real sort of upsurge in informal building of various kinds in the early 1950s. But the real sort of trigger point Point that I reference in the book is that Pedro Beltran, who was trained as an economist, but owned a national newspaper, La Prensa, for several decades, was very interested in housing issues and used his newspaper as a way of sparking a debate about housing policy. So he's one of the key figures. Great. So you mentioned Beltran. So we did choose a chapter that has three leading figures, so to speak. And so we just wanted to, before going further, introduce our main characters and the world vision that they each represented and architectural vision and approach to housing that they each represented. I'll prompt you one by one, but we can start with Pedro Beltran, who you already mentioned. So who, who was Pedro Beltran and what ideals did he represent in this broader housing debate? So he was trained as an economist, including a stint at the London School of Economics, I think. So he had international connections in that sphere. He owned a newspaper, La Prensa, and was very engaged in housing issues. He also had brief forays into political positions, but they never lasted very long. I suspect he was a had a difficult personality and didn't really enjoy working for other people. But his political connections 
became important, particularly his connections to Manuel Prado. As I mentioned, he used his newspaper to launch a discussion about how to deal with affordable housing. And his main um, proposal was promoting home ownership. This is in keeping with his sort of old school liberal standpoint. And he wanted to use government funds to in a sense, subsidise mortgages so that more people would have access to mortgage financing. He wasn't particularly concerned about the form that the housing would take. So if it was, if it met minimum standard sort of modernist ideals, that was fine. But if it took a while to get to that point, if it started with a very minimal structure or a self-built structure and only worked its way towards conventional standard housing, he was fine with that. Really the key issue for him was helping the market to solve the problem essentially through mechanisms like supporting mortgage financing. Oh, interesting. I also, on the subject of international connections, you mentioned that he had personal and professional relationships with people who would be the most canonical neoliberals, such as von Mises, Frederick Hayek, and Milton Friedman, which I thought was interesting in setting him up as, and I don't know what you would think of this, as a kind of early iteration of Hernando de Soto, not only in his ideals, but in his kind of globally connected neoliberal conservative economist world. Sure, I guess think the distinction that I would draw between the two is that I think Beltran wanted to use some of the mechanisms of government to support the market. Mm-hmm. I think De Soto is generally more hostile towards any idea of government intervention, whereas I think Beltran was more interested in using the levers of government to support the market. Interesting. Okay, so our next protagonist is Fernando Belaunde Terry. Who was he? Peruvians will know this. Um, so he's huge. He trained as an architect significantly in Florida in the period of the New Deal. And so the New Deal would become very important to him. So he's, in contrast to Beltran, he's very much in the idea of big government, big interventions as a way of stimulating development. So as an architect, He was, I would say, in terms of his designs, not a particularly innovative architect, but a sort of mainstream modernist architect. But he was huge in terms of his contributions as an educator, particularly bringing housing to the forefront in an architectural education in Peru. And also as a publisher, he set up the magazine El Arquitecto Peruano, which had a lot of articles on housing. And then, of course, he was also a politician. So he served in the Peruvian parliament in the 40s and was instrumental in setting up the Peruvian National Housing Agency and the National Planning Agency when that that his parliamentary career came to an end when the parliament was dissolved after a coup, but he would then go on to run for president a number of times 
unsuccessfully in 1956. But interestingly, John Turner mentioned that the fact that Belayonde was running for president was one of the reasons that he went to Peru, because there was an anticipation among Nera and some of their colleagues that that uh, Belayonde would win. And as Turner told me, there'd be jobs for the boys, meaning there'd be a lot of money in architectural, Belayonde would be putting a lot of money into housing. He didn't win that election. He did win an election in 1963. He was ousted in a coup in 1968, but he was re-elected to the presidency in 1980 after the military government that took over in 1968 was eventually um, phased out and Peru returned to democracy. You also note that his kind of like preferred form of urbanization was the Unidad Vecinal, which mm-hmm. yep. replicated the Greenbelt towns promoted by the New Deal. And the pictures you include are quite, I don't know, striking in that you have these high-rise very geometrical well I don't know how high rise but like very geometrical buildings surrounded by agricultural land disconnected Mm. from the urban fabric yeah so part of that is that land is less expensive but it's also the idea that you're creating a self-sufficient community where all the needs of daily life are in walking distance so you have shops and recreation spaces and schools all all within a very close Uh, range. Okay, so last character, we have Adolfo Cordoba, who comes in as a kind of third alternative. So Cordoba is maybe even less known for us on the outside. Who was he and what vision was he proposing? So Cordoba is an interesting figure because he had connections to Beleone. Beleone was uh, one of his teachers. And he, so he's also an architect trained within Peru, very interested in housing issues. Tran, once his sort of ally Prado took over the presidency in 1956, he supported the idea of having a national inquiry into agrarian reform and housing. So Beltran was the chair of that whole commission of inquiry and Cordova was brought on to do a nationwide survey of the state of housing within Peru. And he's was a representative of a more progressive political movement, the uh, Movimiento Social Progresista, which other architects were connected to. And I think the really key thing in that housing survey is that he really points out in very stark terms the sheer um, amount of the housing deficit in quantitative terms and also in qualitative terms. And he starts to question the whole rhetoric that's coming from Beltran about home ownership being a solution for that's going to work for a large number of Peruvians. He says that we need to be realistic about the costs of housing on the one hand and what people can actually afford And we need to think about what standards that involves, but we also need to think about really what are realistic government interventions. And he also says, I think importantly, that the problem of 
of housing is preceded by the problem of poverty. And you can't, any effort to look at housing in isolation is not going to succeed. So he talks about the need for inclusive economic development, rising wages, some kind of structural reform, whether it's to do with the redistribution of agricultural land or whether it's some of people who some of the people later on in that sort of vein of thinking would start to talk about the need to expropriate land for affordable housing projects within Lima because otherwise there's a lot of speculation in land which is one of the contributing factors to the unaffordability of housing. Yeah, you have a great quote, which I think summarizes ideas you write. For Cordoba and the MSP, the Movimiento Social Progresista in general, the reduced economic capacity of most Peruvians was the major cause of the housing crisis. In this view, increasingly unregulated capital flows would, rather than providing a solution, only exacerbate existing inequalities. Instead, the MSP argued for planificación, large-scale physical planning, and wide-ranging structural reform, envisaging a powerful state with a re redistributive role that was quite different from Belaunde's conception. I just, I love that mm -hmm. quote. <laughs> I didn't put it. <laughs> Kelly, Thank do you, you want to keep going? Yes, Kelly, you trace the fight between these three big visions by tracing the media discourse through the, through, through the press and other sources. And I don't know if you can tell us a little bit more about how this fight play out what was so important to have a narrative and also especially what was so important to have um, a media to, to diffuse this narrative? Yeah, so it's interesting. One other, there are a number of sort of points where the media narrative is really important. One of them is around the happens, as, as I mentioned, at the end of 1954, after I mean, after, sorry, Beltranas had this series of articles about uh, the need for affordable housing. And in the month following the invasion, I looked through all the sort of microfilm of those issues of La Plensa, and it's literally there are photographs and stories about the Ciudad de Dios invasion on the front page of the newspaper every single day. And it's it's it becomes clear later on that Beltran was, in a sense, trying to leverage that invasion to advance his own political career. But in the short term, the pressure from his newspaper, I think, did contribute to Prado's devoting resources to housing. So that's one sort of very definite way that I, I looked at, for example, I looked at another major newspaper, El Comercio, over the same period, and there's hardly any mention of that invasion at all. You, there's one tiny story that talked about the fact when some of the invasion leaders met with the met with Prado, I think, but otherwise from looking at the front pages, you would not know that invasion had taken place. So it's very clearly being used by Beltran as a way of putting the focus on housing issues and using that to forward an agenda. And I think that probably that invasion was a contributing factor to Prado deciding to launch this commission into agrarian reform and housing, which ended up 
coming through with a number of recommendations that were implemented. So its main focus, reflecting Beltran's interest, was in the re main recommendation was to promote home ownership, but it also had specific recommendations like establishing savings and loans associations, promoting aided self-help housing, promoting not government funding, really, but government assistance through technical assistance offices. That's one um, point where the media discourse is really key. Another one is around the passage of legislation in 1961, the Law 13517, which sought to control the construction of squatter settlements through upgrading, but also through what were effectively sites and services projects, which is a, it's a very again, very innovative piece of legislation and I think really groundbreaking in Latin America in terms of trying to engage with forms of urban informality, trying to bring um, architectural expertise and legislation into dialogue with those forms of informal building. Once again, there was a lot of critique of that uh, legislation in El Comercio and support for it in La Prensa. Belaunde's and Beltran's visions appear to be opposite, and yet in specific junctures, they were able to like mutually benefit by emphasizing slightly different things of projects that combined their perspectives. So the Casa Que Crece, the House That Grows project, which was a kind of architectural competition, combined a little bit of their two visions. So that's an interesting point where... Beltran is promoting this idea of, okay, we can build more housing, increase home ownership if we have more mortgage financing. And Belinda says, yeah, okay, the budgets you're proposing are realistic, but let's see what architects can come up with as solutions. So essentially the competition that La Prensa sponsors is to come up with prototypes of very low cost housing, but architect designed housing that still meets a minimum standard. Yeah, they have different agendas going into that project, but Belliandi is trying to use it as a way to show that, yes, architecture, conventional architecture can meet this challenge through technological innovation, through improvements to construction processes, what have you. Another thing that I thought was very interesting in this chapter is how you highlight that different figures, architects, but especially I think Belaunde constantly sought to frame self-help housing as something that was essentially or characteristically Peruvian. Mm -hmm. So that not only responded to the particular needs of Peru and the skills of Peruvians who are like inherently very good at constructing, but that also connect self-help to the tradition of Minca or Minga, I think we would call it in Colombia, of like cooperative community work as something that was rooted in the Incan empire. And at the same time, those cultural traits were relied upon and cultivated by some of the programs. You write about CERAV. Can you remind me what CERAV stands for? Oh, that's the Comisión para la Forma Agraria y la Vivienda. Yes. And so, I don't know if the, you say CERAV, but you write that according to Serrab's conception, the technical assistance recommended the employment of ayuda mutua dirigida, through which it was hoped 
Peru's ancient tradition of communal building practices would compensate for its lack of capital savings. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I thought that was very interesting. Do you have anything to like comment on that? I think that one interesting thing is that although Beleonde didn't believe in self-help housing, he still evoked these ideas of cooperative cooperativism and the sort of through his um, political party, which was called Acción Popular, and he put forward this program of Cooperación Popular once he was elected in the 60s. So he has this idea of community, almost like community development. People can work on collective projects at a sort of village level or maybe at a neighbourhood level, but he didn't believe in, in aided self-help housing per se. So that's kind of, Bellion is interesting in that sense that he wants to keep expertise in the mix and when it comes to housing and urban housing in particular, architectural expertise needs to take precedence over that self-help idea, but he allows for it in other spheres. Um, the... Commission on, on Housing has a much wider conception of where the aided self-help can come in. A another sort of interesting thing about the self-help is that it's, it's adopted by or cultivated by people coming from a number of different ideological or political viewpoints. And there's also this idea of sometimes it's collective and mutual and sometimes it's individualised. I think it's also speaking to the moment, the developmentalist moment of strengthening national development, breaking the dependency, asymmetries. And so I, I see these appeals to, oh, this is a uniquely Peruvian or maybe not uniquely, but appropriately mm -hmm. Peruvian way of building housing that I think is interesting and challenges a little bit some of the more dogmatic Siam modernist paradigms of like there's a universal right way to do things and this is it. Right. Yeah, yeah. The national development aspect of aided self-help is it's there in the 60s for sure with Beltran. It's the idea that by through home ownership, there's you're developing a sort of sense of responsibility, a sense of savings, participating in these sort of larger capitalist markets as a worker and as a consumer and the idea is that through building up this sort of sense of personal responsibility you're fostering a larger sense of economic development and I think that goes in two different directions in the sort of late 60s and 70s under the revolutionary government there's the idea of a community national development led through community development directed by the revolutionary government that reframes squatter settlements as a kind of form of community development that can be more broadly applicable to Peru as a whole. And then under De Soto, there's again this sort of reframing of, well, aided self-help or not aided self-help, but individualised self-help is a way of fostering a sense of entrepreneurialism which is going to be going to lead Peru's economic development. So it, it gets an interesting spin under dependency theory, under the influence of dependency theory, and then gets another sort of neoliberal spin. The housing, I guess in some ways you can, the housing, some of the projects in the 80s, Waikan is a different project to some of the earlier ones, but 
in some ways, the ideology and the rhetoric changes more than the housing outcomes. Yes, that is where I want to go because you mentioned that even though they have some difference, they have one similar point in common, which is about that that they are focusing the projects into something like middle-earth income people. Belaunde and also Beltran, they were talking about people who can access credit system. Because have you mentioned at the end of the day, those most vulnerable people are the ones who are more difficult to incorporate into the credit systems, no? So Yeah, what's coming to mind is a diagram that was put together by the housing agency that shows it's essentially looking at the tens of thousands of people who'd applied for housing in Lima in 1963. And it graphs out in a little very small sketch, what kind of house they could afford, whether it was a standard. So the top is like a standard modern dwelling, and then it decreases as you go down to maybe it's just a single room with a perimeter wall. And then right at the bottom, for I think the last 12%, it just has a question mark. This is the this is a, a graphic put together by the, the National Housing Body, and it says 12% of the population We've just got a question mark. We can't do anything for those people. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, part of the issue is that when aided self-help housing first appeared, there were, and was first being trialled, there were very optimistic assessments about how much it could lower housing costs. And of course, the more aid, the more assistance you have from architects and planners and so on, the more expensive it is. And so that was one of the sort of issues around raising the cost was just the fact that uh, the actual assistance really adds to the expense. And I think that there were very optimistic assessments about how long it would take people to build a dwelling, which is a challenge, not just, it's a challenge for the family that might be in an incomplete house for 10, 15, 20 years, but it's also a real challenge for architects, politicians, housing administrators to think about how do we support a housing project that we don't finish and hand over the keys once we've done the initial build? How do we actually provide ongoing technical support? And that's a real problem that a lot of these projects faced. Helen, at the end, which one do you think won this kind of fight, this ideological fight? I think at the end of the period that I'm looking at in the mid-80s, you would have to say that the neoliberalism had won. Essentially, I think that in order to really implement the projects that were envisaged in the 1961 legislation, for example, the sort of large-scale construction of sites and services projects or something along that, along those lines, would have required a lot more funding, a lot more trained staff than were actually available and realistically ready to go. So there were some, in a sense, the fact that Peru had a weak state or a weak sort of bureaucratic infrastructure meant that it was difficult for those trials to be successful on a large scale. And I think that 
having made a few trials and perhaps they weren't as successful as people had anticipated, it was easy to say we tried that. Now let's try this sort of alternative um, pathway that Ananda de Soto is proposing, which is much more of a disengaged state, no effort to, really no ambition to think about what are the implications of a urban informality at the urban scale, at the neighbourhood scale? I think it's a bit of a myth that just formalising or regularising settlements has no cost for the government mm -hmm. because the government does assume those costs. It just does so post facto in this very like inefficient way, which I think definitely is the topic, among others, of our second episode on Peru that we'll have look out for that. And I wanted to also, along these lines, return to architecture, which was our kind of point of departure, because so we've traced this debate on the macro level. But because of your particular training and lens, I wanted to make some space for a deeper discussion, which is in the book. Check that out, everyone of the impact of these big ideas on the built form itself and the specific architectural design. So can you talk a little bit about what architectural designs were aligned with Belaunde or Beltrans or, well, let's just start there and then we'll think about the legacy of that. So there are the conventional housing projects that Belaunde was involved with that are these sort of low-rise, self-contained, Unidad Vecinal-style projects. So Conventional kind of modernist housing that you might see, in some ways they're reminiscent of the kind of projects that were built in my era Germany. They're very simple, streamlined forms, focusing on having some kind of neighbourhood space, some community space. This is a very common housing form in Sydney. Here they're just called semis. I, I haven't seen them so much in the US, but anyway, it looks like a, if you look at it from a distance, it looks like one house, but it's actually two houses with a party wall. So it's cheaper than building a single family house, but there's more of a sense of independent living than in an apartment block. So that was his solution to lowering costs is a very simple streamlined, no kind of bells and whistles house with, yeah, just if a very sort of simple modernist block form. And then the his, his idea of lowering costs is more to do with making the building site very efficient. So it's to do with building technologies and building processes. The other winner of that competition is by Santiago Ogoto, which he named La Casa Que Crece, The Growing House. He talks about his inspiration being barriada housing, squatter settlement housing, and the fact that people build their houses over a long period of time. So he envisages a house that can start with a single, basically multi-purpose room. It's a house that's in the middle of a garden plot. So it's a single form surrounded by a garden, and it's designed in such a way that it would be easy to add on rooms over time as the family's income increases and as the there are more family members who need to be accommodated. So that's very much about progressive development, incremental construction, something that changes over time. So it's not 
it's the idea that you start with a very basic standard house but move towards a minimum standard. Can you just, because we haven't mentioned it, can you say very quickly what Previ was? Okay, so Previ was a project to develop models for low-cost housing. There are a number of different components to it, but the main one involved essentially the idea that architects would design a house where the first phase of construction would be built by in using the construction techniques to lower costs, and then residents would ex expand their houses over time following the plan that the architects had put together and using often um, particular components, building components, particular kinds of bricks or beams or roofing materials that the architect designed and would be available for purchase by residents so they could follow the architect's plan in building the house. So the idea is that when people build their own houses off their own bat, they're often not very well designed in terms of cross-ventilation or maximising the amount of light that's inside the structure. So the idea is that by bringing in architects, you have a very well-designed house, but you're making use of people's um, own labour over time to expand the house, which makes it cheaper. I just wanted to mention something that I forgot to mention, because now currently in Peru, we also have, again, a new debate about social housing with people questions what is social housing because now the government and the private sector they are launching a new regulation for more densification but again the problem is that they frame this conversation about social housing but in behind what we are questioning about is this really so the the kind of social housing that we need this has happened before and now it's happening again and there is a lot of media debates, YouTube, Facebook channel. There is a lot of figures like, I don't know, like Beltran, like Belaunde, but there are missing some figures, some other people talking about exactly what is their real problem. And it's brought us to the last question because now vulnerability has grown in Peru, informality too. I mean, like these big questions it is still unanswered. So thinking about this, Kelly, why do you do think this is still important have something to, to teach us? And thinking I think about low housing just turning and, back on and especially about self-help I'm not going to say that in doing the research, I found the project that's going to solve housing issues. But I think that revisiting those projects does allow you to illuminate where specifically the challenges were and allows you to think, okay, that's the challenge. How do we find a way around that? How do we, how do we think what the solution might be? And if we just start pulling out solutions without thinking through what their consequences have been for those solutions in the past, you're going to end up making similar mistakes again. It's a perfect place to end. Helen, Kelly, thank you both so much. Thank you for your interest. It was a great conversation. Sur Urbano is a product of Latin American Cities Working Group, based in UC Berkeley. To find out more about us, check out the show notes, where we also link the articles we discuss. If you have any questions or suggestions, 
Or if you want to be a co-host, you can reach us at Latam underscore cities on Twitter or write to me at ipenarandac on Instagram or Twitter. This season was made possible by grants from UC Berkeley's Social Science Matrix and the Berkeley Economy and Society Initiative. Our original music is made by Jaime Alejandro Angarita and art by Rachel Myers. Finally, our production was done by the amazing Sebastián Duque.